three, two, one, roll the footage. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Severino, your host. And my guest today is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, University Distinguished Professor. She's among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world. Her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience has led to her popular TED Talk with over 6 million views, her books, the most recent ones being How Emotions Are Made and Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, and we will deep dive into what the real job is of the brain and many, many misconceptions about brain and emotions that we have that she will deconstruct with us. And let's see where we end up. Welcome, everybody. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. It's really great to be here. It's amazing to have you here. And for, for the few people who have not read your book, what is the number one job of the brain? The number one job of the brain is to regulate the systems of your body. So we, you know, as a culture, we prize thinking, logic. And so we assume that this is the pinnacle of, you know, brain function, that that's what brains evolved to do. Um, but that's actually not the case. In fact, right now, for you and for me and for every person listening to us uh, on this podcast, there's a whole drama a whole uh, symphony of things going on inside your body that you're completely unaware of. Um, there are millions of little moving parts that have to be coordinated and regulated in the most metabolically efficient way for you to stay healthy and to thrive. And everything we think and feel and see and do is really in the service of that regulation, even though we don't experience our lives that way. And one thing that I found really, really shocking is you say not everybody has emotions. Yeah, so it's even more shocking than that, actually. So what an emotion is, is different for different people in different cultures. And in some cultures, there's no real distinction between thinking and feeling. So in, you know, Western cultures, we tend to think of a mind as, you know, at war with itself. You have an inner beast. It's always, you know, seething with instincts and emotions. And you have to, you know, your rational side has to try to control those. And the two pieces are kind of, you know, uh, in a um, battle uh, throughout, throughout your whole life. Um, but in some cultures, thoughts and feelings are part of a unified whole experience. There's no real distinction between those. And um, actually, the neuroscience evidence suggests that's probably more correct. Your brain is always regulating your body. Your body is always sending information back to your brain about the state of the of the drama going on inside you. And none of us hopefully experience that directly because if you if you did, we wouldn't be having this conversation and uh, you wouldn't be able to pay attention to anything outside you know your own skin if you were actually aware of all the things that are going on inside. And if you doubt that, 
just remember the last time that you had gastric distress or something that you were feeling ill in some way. The world recedes and you're really focused on what's going on inside your own body. So the way that typically we experience uh, the drama inside our own bodies, what evolution gave us is the ability to have these really simple feelings, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling worked up or feeling energetic or feeling fatigued or calm, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. These are feelings that are not emotions. They're always with us every waking moment of our lives because they come from the regulation of the body. So really the, the architecture of the brain ensures that you never have a moment in your entire life that's without feeling. So you can't, they can't really, feelings and thoughts cannot really be at odds with each other. Um, and in the moments where feelings are not in the foreground, they're just lurking around in the background, really. And I'm thinking of German literature where you have this metaphor of the horse and the person on the horse, riding the horse, which might be a symbol for, right? We have our animal side, the emotions, but we control them and we can get a kind of a balance of the two. Yeah, that's exactly right. So actually that metaphor goes all the way back to Plato, mm -hmm. um, who, who understood the human psyche as a charioteer controlling two horses. Mm. And uh, one horse was instincts, and the other horse was emotions and the charioteer was rationality. And so the idea is that in, inside you, you have this ancient beast lurking, these circuits that, you know, for animalistic uh, emotions and, and instincts and that your rational brain uh, will control this more emotional instinctual brain. Sometimes it's portrayed, like you say, in German literature, it's a, it's a single rider on a horse um, sometimes you see a rider on an elephant, right? It's, but this idea that we have this inner beast that we have to tame. And that's just a myth. It's just really, it feels that way to us because we've been taught to, to, to understand it that way. But that's really not happening. Uh, that's really not how your brain works. However, what you said is absolutely right, that we have more control than we know uh, over um how we feel and what we do it we might not have as much control as we would like and the control might not be as easy as we wish it were but we definitely have more control than we think this is fascinating you see you say the brain controls the emotion i i have been reading a book recently because you say Plato, which was asking the question, who was actually the teacher of Plato? And that goes back to Parmenides and the South Italian wisdom tradition that has not been written so much about because Athens has been write, writing history. Of course, winners write history and they, they write forward. <laughs> and so Athens and Plato they, they, they stand for logical thinking, but really Parmenides and his teachers, they, they, they were standing for more of Apollonian pre-logical uh, moments. They were laying down in the dark for hours at, at waiting for the, the 
the bigger picture to come and then they would act and teach and bring it to the practical so um did you what's your what's your take on this are we really such a logical civilization or or is this just a, a story that we tell each other it's just a story it's ju it's absolutely just a story i mean you know uh psychologists and other behavioral scientists have loads and loads and loads of experiments showing how people don't often do the logical thing. Um, and then they tell themselves a story to try to make it seem logical, you know, after the fact. But I've really come to the conclusion that logic and rationality is misunderstood. It's just, it's misunderstood as the absence of emotion or the absence of feeling. And that's just actually not correct. I think the logical, so, the logical or rational thing to do, let's say financially, right, is to spend what you have, invest <clears throat> what you can, um, and to not, you know, um, run a deficit. And that's really what your brain attempts to do for your body. It just in making those decisions involves feeling. So I think some of the things that we look at and we go, well, that was really irrational, actually wasn't irrational at all. The brain, what the brain is doing, its main job is to run a budget for your body, to keep your body running efficiently in a metabolic sense. We don't, I don't experience every hug I give, every insult I bear, everything I read that I love or that drives me insane. I don't experience, you know, uh, that in terms of regulation of my body, but that literally is what's happening. And we really have to take that into account. And if we do, which is really why I wrote seven and a half lessons, if we do, it really changes how we act, how we treat our friends and family and customers and coworkers. It really changes how we understand ourselves as human beings and gives us different ways to try to um, become the kind of human we really want to be. Why seven and a half and not seven? <laughs> well, I want to be a little different. You know, I, I uh, actually, there was a wonderful book uh, written by Carlo Rivelli, uh, the physicist, Italian physicist, uh, called Seven Brief Lessons in Physics. And when I saw that book, I got really excited because a number of years ago, I started writing a book called Six Facts About the Brain. And I never finished it because I just got really busy with other things. And I thought, that's really great. Uh, so I read his book and I thought, well, that seven's a good number, but I just want to be a little different. And it turned out that you know, there's a really interesting story about brain evolution that's very long and interesting, but it's long. And I was going for, you know, short little essays that people could read, you know, in a in 20 minutes. And so I thought, well, I'll just tell a bit. I'll just tell a bit of that story at the beginning, the part that I think is most important for the book. And it's really just a half lesson. So that was me just trying to be funny, I guess. How did writing the book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, change you? Well, I don't think that any of the information in there changed me because I, 
I already had covered a lot of that material in a longer form in how emotions are made. Some, some of it, some of it. There is some material in there that is new. And the material in there that I'd covered before, I'm just doing something different with it than I did in, in, in how emotions are made. But I think the way it changed me was, um, first of all, I've never written essays before in this way. Like I've never written popular essays for, for a popular audience. I've never attempted to really take my lab coat off and give my opinion about certain things, which I do in the book. And I try to flag for people, you know, I'm taking my lab coat off. I'm now telling you my personal opinion as opposed to what I can justify as a scientist. Um, that was a little scary, I think. Um, and because, you know, I, one of your questions, which is, which I really loved that you that you ask your guests is um, something about who's a less person or who's someone who zigged when you, everyone else is zagging or something like that or who's yeah zags when everyone else is zigging and I think you know everyone can find something to disagree with in in my views <laughs> so it doesn't matter in the United States whether you're Republican or Democrat you know there's always something to, to something to disagree with and so it felt a little fraught um to um for me to say some of the things I say in this book um you know I I make this point about um childhood poverty and how it's very bad for brain development in a way that is so pernicious it's it really should we really as a as a species should cure this ill it's really bad normally when people make this claim though they make it on moral grounds and i'm just making it on practical business related grounds you know i'm making this claim on the not just on the basis of science but on the basis of you know finances and on the basis of human capital like business owners should care about this because those little brains become the workforce of the next generation and a good business person invests in the future they don't just think about today and you know what's interesting is that to me is that what I was afraid of really was that everyone would find something to disagree with. So the people who, you know, are, um, uh, very, you know, the people who are, are very liberal would, would not like the tone of the argument and the people who are very conservative would not like the message, meaning, you know, that childhood poverty is not really as important as it actually really is. But actually what I found was that it seems like people, what's happened is it's really united people instead of, you know, um, arguing with people. And I think that's an important lesson because sometimes the things that you're most concerned about are the things that teach you, can have the biggest impact and can teach you the most, you know? Now that you know so much about the brain and about emotions, do you live a completely different life? How does a day in the life look like? I would say yes. Um, so I'm very data driven as a person, um, meaning I, uh, I don't believe my own, I don't go with my own stories, you know, or what seems intuitive to me or, or what seems um, 
realistic to me. I'm, I'm really very data driven. So if an experiment comes out and it's very well designed and it's very generalizable, we'll probably, you know, change our behavior to ad adhere to it. So I would say when I started this journey a number of years ago, we've changed almost everything about our lives. We change how we eat. Um, we change what we eat. Um, I've always exercised every day, every day as an adult, but now I do it in a different way than I did before. Um, I also try to get, I, I can say that I try to get eight hours sleep. I, I don't get eight hours sleep, but I do always get six or seven hours sleep. That's, you know, but I mean, I lived probably for 20 years of my life where I was getting four or five hours of sleep, sometimes three, sometimes none. Um, and, um, you know, I run a big lab and, uh, it's kind of like a small business running a big lab. You're constantly looking for, um, revenue, <laughs> you know, you're constantly looking for money to run, to run your experiments, to pay your staff to, you know, you have all these young lives that are, you're responsible for their paths forward. Um, at the same time, you know, I have a family and I, yeah, that I have to take care of. And so, you know, I wasn't sleeping very much for a very long time. And it turns out that's really bad. Like sleep is probably the most important thing that you can change in your life um, uh, to get more sleep, to get enough sleep. So, um, and I would say, yeah, I mean, um, I, I take some of the scientific understanding, you know, like, for example, the our brains construct everything we experience. And I take that really seriously in my life. It leaves me more curious. It leaves me more humble. Um, and it also allows me to protect myself. You know, if I, if someone <laughs> criticizes me in a way, um, my, my, my first thought is, oh, that's just electrical activity in somebody else's brain. It just like diffuses the, you know, and then when I'm feeling a little stronger, I can come back and actually try to listen to what they said, you know, and see if there's something in it that's useful for me. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think I, I think I, I live very, very differently. And what's really nice for me is that I think at this point, I probably have, oh, thousands of emails from people emailing me and telling me that they've read seven and a half lessons where they've read how emotions are made. Um, and it's completely changed their lives. And that's extremely gratifying. I, I want to know more about all of this. And the first question is now that you know that everything is electrical activity, did this make you more spiritual or less? That's a really, nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a great question. Um, I would say it's probably made me more spiritual, but maybe not in a way that is conventional. So, um, I mean, I think I have always really gravitated to things that are miraculous. And the things that are miraculous 
I mean, of course, you know, there's the sky, you know, the stars and the ocean and, you know, cr you know there's cr uh, crickets. I, I've, I've developed this real love of the sound of crickets at night, like mm -hmm. especially in the summer here, you know, you're just, you're completely enveloped by this symphony of sound at night. It's just breathtaking. But I think I've also, um, you know, you can find little miraculous moments, lots of places in your life, lots of moments in your life. And I've learned, I think, to, to really appreciate those. And what that does for me is it cultivates a sense of wonder and awe, which makes me feel I'm insignificant in a good way. I mean, small in a good way, meaning whatever problems I have, whatever stresses are going on for me in the moment, there's a bigger, wider universe of miraculous things. And just getting that perspective just for a moment gives my nervous system a break and and that's really really helpful also i think one of the things that i've come to appreciate more is that as humans as humans we're animals we're social animals we are our nervous systems are intimately connected with each other and with other animals uh that we cohabitate with like dogs cats pets but other animals too and that can sound very gauzy and very, you know, but it's actually very concretely scientific also. So, you know, the best thing for a human nervous system is another human. The worst thing for a human nervous system is another human. You know, our, 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 um, our electrical signals are intertwined in very profound and concrete biological ways so this interdependence that we have is um not something that we are at least in our sort of western way of seeing things not something that we're used to thinking about and that we often resist you know we prize individual rights and freedoms um and as we should you know i'm not saying that that's wrong but it does sometimes come directly um uh, it loggerheads or in conflict with this interdependence that we have as humans and as, as, as a social species. And so I've, I think one consequence for me in my own life is that I now think a lot more about my impact on other people. And, and I have to ask you this question, what is beauty? So why, why can we in some situations be in this oceanic moment in this experience and experience beauty and calmness if everything is just electrical signals why because it isn't just electrical signals that's the i mean it is but it right so carlo you know i when i was reading carlo rivelli i i you know i have to say I, you know, I've never really understood physics and I've never really understood quantum mechanics. I, it really, it completely puzzles me. Right. But he wrote this really, so he wrote, you know, seven brief lessons about physics. It's, it's a very poetic book. It's very lovely, but the book I really loved is I have it sitting here, right? So just over mm -hmm. there is uh, called Helgoland. And mm -hmm. in this book, he explains 
his relational view of of phys of quantum mechanics and i'm reading this book and i'm realizing oh this is what i write about except i'm writing about it in terms of neuroscience and right so basically he makes this he 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 sort of walks you very patiently through this series of explanations that you know physical signals have no inherent meaning they're only a signal a quantity of something a signal like an electrical signal is only meaningful in relation to something else and that's a hard thing to understand without going through all the logic of his book but fundamentally this is also true um about the brain it's about it's true about how the brain works when when one neuron is talking to another neuron the the function that's being performed there is is of that one neuron is dependent on which neuron is receiving it so exactly the same signal can mean very different things to very different other you know to multiple neurons and what ha what what's going on is that in this symphony of entwined uh signals um what we're doing essentially is we're making meaning of the signals that come from our bodies and that come from the world. So without those, you know, the meaning of any signal from the world isn't in the world. It's actually in your brain relative to your body. So even though your thoughts and your feelings and, and everything comes, what you see, what you hear comes from these physical signals, those physical signals are, you know, they're, it's a kind of magic in a sense uh, because we don't really understand how those physical signals give rise to what we see and what we hear but really but they do and you know things in the world and things in the body that are going on become meaningful really in the brain the, your brain is a meaning maker and so um it's a it's a mysterious and wonderful thing and one day you know scientists will will crack the answer to to that to that that mystery and the good news is you say we are not um completely out of control and emotions run us we actually create and we are somehow in control and you have even found more control you know now more how to eat and how to exercise what changed in your eating and exercising principles? Well, um, we try, I mean, not to, you know, to channel Michael Pollan, the author. I mean, we try to eat whole real food, right? So uh, now we'll, I mean, I'm a great lover of bread. I am not ashamed to say I, I, I totally love bread, but you know, bread is really, at least the way it's made, you know, here, is is really a dessert <laughs> it's not really you know um or you know yogurt for example right so you, you walk into a supermarket and you know yogurt has all of these like little candies in them or little you know like or jam or whatever it's just it's like dessert it's not breakfast food right or you know you look at a muffin and a muffin is really just a cupcake you know without the icing so i think that um i'm trying to think actually about um, you know, food from the perspective of my actual body, not what, what tastes good. And I say, this is someone who loves French fries, 
who loves chocolate, who loves, you know, bread, as I said. Um, but for example, there's research to show, and this is, this again, this is like so, this is miraculous, this research. I'm just blown away by it. Um, that every species that's ever been studied, with the exception of two, will eat to a protein, they'll eat to meet a protein, uh, a, a threat to eat to a, a threshold of protein. They're trying to hit a protein quotient. And that's even true of humans. So when you walk into your kitchen, you know, where you go to a restaurant, you're not, you're not consciously aware, like, oh, I better, I'm, you know, I haven't made my whatever grams of protein today. So I, I better eat protein. No, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, that looks delicious. So that doesn't look like it's going to taste very well. You know, I really have a craving for whatever, but actually what's happening is you will overeat carbohydrates. You will overeat fat. You will overeat every nutrient in order to meet that protein target. And that's what animals do. And so, and they do it completely. I mean, slime molds do it the number of animals that do it, then there are these miraculous, like natural events that occur that demonstrate that this is actually what's going on. Um, and so now I use that principle very, you know, so I think about actually, you know, how much protein is available in a meal, and we will actually change the complement of our meal. Um, and I would say, you know, we eat more vegetables and you know so there's research for example which shows that um failure to eat you know salads and things with a lot of fiber in them natural fiber in them is as it predisposes you to cancer as much as smoking that's a that's a shock but so things like that, I would say that I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pay attention to my body budget to make it easier for my brain to regulate. And that has the effect of less distress, less fatigue. Um, and um, that makes it easier for my brain to make emotions that are not unpleasant. And you were always exercising daily, but you changed the way you exercise. What was the shift? So I, um, I, you know, I really like to lift weights. I really, and I like to lift heavy weights, you know, so that was always my goal to, to lift as heavy, to, you know, lift as heavy, heavy weights as possible as frequently as possible. I mean, like I do, that's what I like to do. I'm not really, you know, um, I'm, you know, I always thought about stretching and, and breathing and things like that, like, you know, like paced breath, like with yoga, I've always thought about those things as sort of like not really exercise, you know, real exercise is where you're like sweating and grunting and, you know, it feels unpleasant, but then later it feels really good. And, you know, and what I've come to realize is that actually stretching and like rolling, you know, with a roller and stretching and conditioning in that in your muscles and so on in that way actually is super important i mean like sometimes more important you know i'm recovering from spinal surgery simon which is why we've had to reschedule this conversation mm -hmm. so many times and um I, you know my recovery is according to my surgeon miraculous and very smooth and the reason why is that i plotted the whole thing out using science a lot of the science you know that's in seven and a half lessons and in how emotions are made 
Um, and I'm not saying that it wasn't painful and that it wasn't challenging, um, but it was, and that it's a, and it's a long process, much longer than, than I imagined it would be. But, um, but I think, you know, I've learned that the, your physical strength isn't really primarily about how much, you know, how much you can bench press or, you know, how much you can, you know, uh, squat. It's a lot of it has to do with, can you hold your, can you hold your torso upright? You know, can you sit, can you walk with good posture? Can you, you know, are you, do you have flexibility? Do your, do your ligaments and your tendons move with, with fluidity or, and, and so a lot of the, the, I mean, I now spend probably three to four hours on conditioning a day, partly because I'm recovering from surgery, but also what I'm doing is well, I'm walking more, I'm running less. Um, I'm, I'm not running at all. I mean, I don't think I'll ever run again, probably sprints, I think are out of my bicycle sprints, maybe, but not, not, not on, a, not on, like not running, you know, so, and then and I pay a lot more attention to my breath, which again, sounds very new agey, but actually your breath is the one way, your breath and drinking water, your breath, drinking water and sleeping. Those are like the major ways that you can control the immediately the systems in your body. For example, if you hydrate yourself well in the morning, you will not feel tired in the afternoon because the main symptom of dehydration is fatigue. It's not mm -hmm. thirst. I resonate so much. Uh, I have just reduced the amount of coffee that I drink, and I, I'm just drinking more tea than coffee per day, and that is a huge difference in how yeah. my body feels, how my energy level yeah. is, how my mind yeah. feels, my, my head. So I, I, it's exactly what I do too. I had to stop drinking coffee. I'm a, a great coffee lover, actually, and for years and years and years. But you know, coffee is like borrowing energy from tomorrow for today. Yeah. And it's also, what is it? Now, now that I know the, the tea energy, now I can say, well, the coffee energy is different. It's a little bit like two meters above the ground. I'm a little bit too high on coffee. It's like a yeah. drug. It is, but you know, I don't know about you, but I still, when someone else is having coffee, I still have a good smell. You know how I get a good whiff because it's, it's just so it's, yes. so, it's like a drug. It's like a drug, uh, yeah. Yes, and uh, I have allowed myself, I, I can have one coffee after every meal and that's fine, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is, mm -hmm. this is fascinating. So the radical constructivism, we create meaning, meaning is not out there. So when somebody criticizes you, you can help yourself by saying, all right, there's just, there's just electrons coming, coming over here. <laughs> and, then, and then you can maybe with a little bit more intention, look at how you are creating meaning and if it's really necessary and if it's serving you. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you feel like crap, or, you know, things go wrong in your day and you just like, I have some moments sometimes where I think I hate my life. I absolutely hate my, I hate everything. Everything just feels so bad. And then I stop and I think, no, I don't hate my life. Everything is not so bad. 
I'm just having a body budgeting moment, you know, my, my bought there's Scott. And so in the morning now, when I wake up, you know, I'll say to my husband, he'll say, how did you sleep? And I'm like, I think it's going to be a difficult body budgeting day today. So I'm just, you know, <laughs> and so, and you know, and so his reaction to that is to give me a hug, right? Not to, you know, be irritated with me or to, you know, like, oh, she's so moody. You know, it's like he gives me a hug. And then I really do. I, I make sure I go for a little longer walk maybe, or, you know, maybe I have a little bit more tea or maybe I, you know, hug my dog a little bit more frequently, whatever it is. The point is that um, it's our natural propensity. And actually there's a whole evolutionary story here. If we had time, it would be interesting to talk about, but it's a whole loop evolutionary story here about why it is that when we, you know, when we feel bad, we assume something is wrong in the world. <laughs> so we look to the world to go, well, what is, what is it that makes, what is it? What is, you know, we're attempting to um, connect what's going on inside the body with what's going on around in the, us in the world. And that is what emotions are. Mm. And sometimes it's important to make that connection and to do it with precision in a way that helps you, you know, guide your actions in a productive way. But sometimes the right solution is to not make an emotion and to just understand it in physical terms. And that's radical because in Western culture, if you do that, you're usually diagnosed with an illness, but it's not an illness. It's actually what it is, is employing scientific understanding. Um, and that gives you flexibility. So sometimes feeling like shit means something is wrong in the world. Sometimes it means you just didn't sleep enough or you need to drink a little bit more water or you need a hug from your, you know, from your best friend. I was thinking about Dexter. Do you know, do you know Dexter? Yeah. So, and what the fascination is, I find it fascinating. And it seems everybody, because it's on Netflix, it's it's one of the big stories that, yeah. that we like yeah. to hear. And I, maybe that's the dichotomy of, hey, feelings is something you can engage with, but you can also not. What's what's your take on this? Yeah, exactly. And it, what's funny about that is I, you know, when people talk about logic and rationality is the absence of feeling, I'm like, no, psychopathy is the absence of feeling, you know, like actually, would you, would you want to judge or in a, in a court case who had no feeling? I don't think you would. I mean, like, you know, feelings are a source of wisdom. I mean, they also can be a real pain in the ass. Don't get me wrong. And they can, you know, but you do have more control and than you think you do. And that control requires effort and like, and I mean, I don't mean effort in the moment when you're trying to regulate, I mean, effort before the moment, you know, it's like regulating is like a skill. It's a skill you have to build. It's actually a whole toolbox of skills that you have to build and you can practice those skills um, before you need them so that when you need them, they're right there automatically. You can just use them really effortlessly the way you would read words on a page or understand, you know, the words that somebody else speaks. Um, and I talk a little bit about that. I have a chapter or two about that in how motions are made to give people some, you know, suggestions for some skill building that they might want to do. Yeah, it sounds like really important skill training. I, today, I was training myself in having less emotion, less emotion, less emotion, because I was buying equities and crypto assets. So this is a moment where you don't want to have emotions. 
And then and then when when this is over and I go over to my kids and to my wife, this is where I, I want to be emotional. And um, so I guess a day in everybody's life is about this skill skill yeah training. i might say it a little i might say it a little differently so i don't buy cryptocurrencies but you know i do make financial decisions and i make financial decisions not just for myself and my family but you know though i have the lives of 25 people young people in my lab whose mm -hmm. lives very their careers very much depend on the decisions financial decisions i make mm -hmm. and i would say that um, I don't, I actually try to look for the feelings that are lurking in the background and that might influence me. I think the problem really lies not with whether the feelings are there or not, because they are there, Simon, they're there. You just might, they might not be in the foreground, but they're dead. They can't not be there unless there's, you're not, you don't have a neurotypical brain. I mean, your brain architecture ensures that they're there. But they could be influencing you in ways. I check the know. fear and greed index before I buy or sell. Exactly. Exactly. But so what you're doing there really is you're not saying, oh, I don't have fear and greed. You're saying, I'm going to bring these things into the foreground where I can see them mm -hmm. and I'm going to weigh them appropriately. They're just sources of information that you weigh. Exactly. And you might decide to weigh them high or you might decide to weigh them low. If you it's decide to weigh them low, that's, that's not the same as saying they're not there. And I think that's important. That's important because you're really tricking yourself if you think they're not there because they just they are. You're just, not, you're just not seeing them. Fear yeah. 23. This is when I buy because when the market is fearful, you want to buy. And, uh, right. and when the market is greedy, that's 40, 45. When the market is greedy, you want to sell because now everybody is on it, which means it's soon over. It's at the top. Yeah, that's a great thanks. I'm going to write that down. Mm -hmm. Fear and greed <laughs> index, really important. I It took me 42 years to get this, but it's really important. <laughs> the emotions of the markets, first, they are cyclical. There are short waves and long waves. And second, you have to go anti-cyclical um, mm -hmm. if, if, if you want to uh, buy low and, and sell because there is a cycle and sell high because there is a psychology of the markets and most investors you know, just 1% are, are these smart professional investors. 99% are people like me and you. They just go in, they try to do the right thing, but they usually are too late or mm -hmm. too early because of psychology. Mm. Although, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm reminded of something I read that Warren Buffett said, which is how he got incredibly wealthy was by losing, losing a little bit of money. So, you know, he always would sell what is it sell too early and too early. buy a little too late or what yeah it was something yeah yeah so um but he would yeah. also hold for 25 years just he one right. decision coca-cola and then he holds it for 25 years the next right. decision apple he holds it the next 25 years so he right. he he's aware of the emotions of the market and of the others but he decides if he gets emotional and when yeah he, he read your book. <laughs> he probably could have written my book. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please, everybody, go and grab these books. How Emotions Are Made, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And, and because they can shorten your recovery phase after surgeries. So 
what else what else do you want from a book <laughs> is there anything i forgot to ask you lisa well i'm enjoying this so much simon that i think we could talk for hours so i probably will say yes i'm sure there are many things we didn't talk about that we could but um, you have to come I'm back when your next book comes out and um, and uh, who should be my next guest you know, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I was actually thinking about who, about this. I love this question about who is a person who is zigging when everyone is zagging. And I was thinking, you know, actually, there are a lot of people. Like in every domain of life, there are people who are doing this, right? So I, my first thought, of course, was of my peeps in my lab. They're all zagging when everybody's zigging by virtue of the fact that they work with me. I mean, they're, you know, the perspective they're taking is very different than, than the sort of mainstream psychological perspective. So, um, but I was thinking, you know, Liz Cheney, she's someone who in the United States who clearly is doing something very different than her fellows. And I have great admiration for her because she is zagging to great cost actually, um, but for the right reasons, I think. Um, and then I saw this, uh, article in the New York Times this morning about these CEOs who are um, have gone out of their way to use their political to use their economic power for political good, which is not typical these days to for CEOs to think of themselves as the um, of these big, you know, companies to think of themselves as the stewards of democracy. And, but these, and then, but the, in this article, it was so interesting. And the one that really caught my attention was um, Jim Fitterling, who is, I can't remember what he's the CEO of some very large company who um, suspended political contributions to members of the US Congress who oppose the certification of the 2020 election. And I thought that guy has balls, seriously. Like that's, I was very impressed by that. Um, there's another person who I recently started reading her book. Her name is Michelle Goodwin and she's a professor of law at the University of California and she she has a book called Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. And this is, she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago where she tells this story of that she had an abortion when she was 12 um, and how it, it saved her life basically. And she had this abortion because she, um, uh, because she was being sexually assaulted by her father. In, in childhood. And what impressed me about this woman is that she is in the New York Times is speaking about things which people don't speak about. And she's not speaking about them from a position of victimhood. She's speaking about them as part of the story of what made her who she is. And I found that very impressive. Like just the, you know, the way that she made decisions and the way that she 
understands the way that she has constructed a story for herself where she's not a victim and she's not a hero. Like she's just, she's just stepped out of that narrative completely. That's a narrative that is very alive in, I don't know if it's all Western culture, but certainly in the United States, you know, there are victims there, you know, you can't be a hero without there being a victim. You can't be a victim without there being a villain. So every story has to have a villain and it has to, and she just sort of sidestepped that entire narrative, which I thought was pretty miraculous, actually. I have great admiration for her and I, I don't know her. I mean, personally, I, I don't know her, but I just, I thought she was, that was amazing. And then the last person I thought of was, I actually, you know, I work at a university. I actually work at two universities. Um, I work at Northeastern University. That's where my primary appointment is. I don't talk very much about, nobody asks me about it and I don't talk very much about it. And if you, you know, if you asked me to criticize it, I'd be very happy. I mean, you know, every academic can criticize their university. But yesterday I had lunch with the provost of the university, David Madigan. And what we talked about primarily was his efforts to reimagine what universities are, like completely reimagine what universities are. And there are a number of efforts that are going on around the world to reimagine what universities are, what the, the what they do, and how what scholarship is, and um, and how and how to bring it better in a way that's um, more efficient to the people who need it, that is the consumers, like like business owners and uh, like, you know, medical workers and like, you know, teachers and, you know, in, in uh, K through 12 and so on. And I, I thought he was, I thought it was so inspiring and impressive. And I, I can't really say that I've, I mean, it was unusual for me, you know, I'm more of a critic usually of higher education than I am a cheerleader in some ways. I think because I'm in it, I can see what the problems are. But his vision was really quite um, inspiring, I thought. And it had a lot to do with taking knowledge from what we would call interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary work, which is a buzzword and everyone thinks it's really great. But, but, but actually implementing it is harder than you might think. And I thought, he, he would also be an interesting person to talk to. So I think any of those people um, would be really interesting for you to talk to or, or Carlo Rivelli. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. I wrote down two books that I want to read from him. You inspired me. Uh, Helgoland and uh, the, seven, the Seven Principles of Physics. Uh, Lessons? The Seven, yeah. Although I have to say, there's also this other book that I'm reading now, which I totally am like in, I'm totally involved with. I'm actually listening to it on tape and I'm reading it. It's called The Dawn of Everything, The New History of Humanity. Mm. It's a very wow. controversial book, but what's interesting about it is they, they're writing about, it's a, it's a, um, uh, an anthropologist and an archaeologist, and they're using anthropological and archaeological evidence to to talk about the history of um, the invention of inequity and where does inequity come from and they're challenging the whole story of human social 
evolution that we were hunter gatherers and very egalitarian. And then we started farming and accumulating wealth. And then that led to, you know, civilization, which led to inequity, which, you know, they've just, they're just taking it apart piece by piece mm. in a way that is absolutely fascinating. Like, I, you know, I, so I can't attest to the, the, the scientific validity of it. Cause I haven't gone back to read, I'm still trying to understand their argument and then I'll go read the, the actual papers, but it's quite an argument. I have to say it's like completely fascinating. So anybody who's interested in business or in money, um, should probably read this book. It's, it's a, it's a roller coaster ride for sure. The dawn of everything. It's I, I, I wrote it down. And it, you reminded me that I have met Dimitri Chamblas, who was at that moment the, the dean of the Californian University of the Arts. And so a, a per se multidisciplinary role, because you have, you know, the choreographers and the musicians, etc., and the different departments. And he asked everybody. So he came in as the new dean and his first intervention was to to co-author a book with everybody and he said please if you could think university from zero what would you do and everybody wrote a chapter and uh, of course this book never became a, a a mainstream book but it's a wonderful book and it's all about at the end these concepts are quite similar and they are half choreography half arts half entrepreneurship very practical yeah, that sounds. What's it called? Um, Do you he remember? He is called Dimitri Chamblas. Okay. Moved okay. from Paris to Los Angeles. The exact book title I have to search it. That's for okay. You. I'll I'll find it. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, he asked the question: How would you completely create an, an a, a curriculum from scratch? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was just so inspired. Uh, I was so inspired talking to the provost yesterday, and I. Uh, yeah, it was a really, uh, it was a really eye-opening um, conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being on the show. Please write another book quickly and bring it <laughs> to us. We want to read the next one. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.